We return this morning to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? 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 The verb tense of that question is of a nature that indicates repetition of question asked. The wise men came to the capital city of Jerusalem as led. And they asked, 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 where is he? And amazingly, nobody at church knew. Of course, it wasn't a church. I just started preaching. But the question was, where is he? that is born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, privily called the wise men, privily called the wise men. Why private? Why behind the scenes? Why in the back room? Well, it's pretty simple. Herod desired no press or publication of what these men had come to see. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also, when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him or unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed unto their own country another way. Father, this morning we thank you for this uh, mind-stirring account. And today we deal with that which is, for many of us, familiar. 
and yet we might say familiar yet unknown for Christendom has dulled our senses and the system of Christianity has caused us to hear things that are spectacular in nature with a dull ear and today we are in desperate need of thy spirit's touch through the word of God as we would attend to the matters at hand and represent these interesting Gentile worshipers of a Jewish Messiah on a day long ago. Help us then today to see in the scriptures something of our Savior that would stir our hearts and minds towards a pledge of love and devotion and obedience in greater measure than when we came. And for that, we will thank you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. The Old Testament prophet of God, Daniel, plays large in our understanding of the wise men that came from the east seeking the born king of the Jews as recorded in our text. Uh, you will recall that over 500 years prior to the birth of the Lord Jesus, the Babylonian wise men, under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, could not interpret that king's haunting dream. And Daniel was called front and center, called up for the task, and Daniel immediately seeks the Lord in prayer along with his three Hebrew friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are sadly better known to us by their pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But nonetheless, Daniel called a prayer meeting and putting a priority on talking to God about it, the three young men beseeched the Lord together. After the Lord answers that prayer of those three or four men together, uh, Daniel successfully interprets a dream that he had never dreamed or heard and sets forth in that dream the developments of world history uh, exactly as we now know, historically, they indeed played out and are playing out. After that encounter with Daniel and his four friends, Daniel 2.48 reads, Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors, listen, over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel became the leader, the governor, the ruler over all the Babylonian wise men. Do you think that Daniel for a minute failed to represent the one true God of heaven and earth before those Babylonian so-called wise men. Furthermore, Daniel 2.49 says that Daniel requested 
his three friends be set over the affairs of the providence, and that he sat in the gate of the king. And so literally all four men who attended the prayer meeting were honored of God with a position of influence in their generation upon generations to come of people that were of the wise man class. Today we will see together the influence of godly Daniel upon the pagan Babylonian magicians, astrologers, and sorcerers that develops in future generations to form the entourage of wise men seeking the born king of the Jews in the days of Herod the Great. Secular history tells us of a Medo-Persian tribe called Magi who were skilled in philosophy, skilled in science, skilled in medicine, serving world leaders thereafter. History tells us of a class of men that are generally designated as wise men who influence the heads of state moving through historical sequences from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome. We can trace the aspect of something of that class of men. From that river of historical background, we find Gentile wise men seeking the Jewish Prince of Promise as herein recorded Matthew chapter 2. Now, before we return to the text in Matthew chapter 2 to focus upon those wise men this morning, I want to briefly pause to note the time gap between Matthew 1 and 2. Matthew's gospel account, as we have previously said, is organized around a number of selected Old Testament prophecies. This section, 1 to 12, centers around the prophecy of Micah 5, 2, as quoted in verse 6. Messiah, the born king of the Jews, would come from the house of bread, Bethlehem, or Bethlehem. Luke's gospel tells us that uh, uh, this was all uh, driven by the Jewish census ordered by Caesar Augustus. That's what took Mary and Joseph to their ancestral home in Bethlehem at the time of the Lord's birth. Apparently, God controls the heart of Caesar Augustus. By comparing Scripture with Scripture, we can say that the record here in Matthew chapter 1 stresses our Lord's kingly genealogy and, of course, then the supernatural genesis of the Lord Jesus from the perspective of Joseph. But then, before chapter 2, Matthew jumps over a number of significant events of which you and I are familiar, mainly because we have a Christmas or two under our belt. But nonetheless, uh, that uh, gap includes the circumcision of Jesus on the eighth day. It includes the messianic rec recognition of old man Simeon and the old woman Anna. The gap includes Mary's purification period of six weeks as under the law. It includes a number of things of which we are familiar. Matthew 2 records the giving of gifts to the Lord, which were not yet received 
when the young family made their impoverished sacrifice of two turtle doves in the temple as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. My point is this. Between Matthew chapter 1 and the events of record in chapter 2, there is a period of months. Now, one of the things that uh, you confront in this particular section of the Word of God is the messy lay of the land out there by way of study materials because of Christendom. Emphasis on the dumb part. Christendom. Uh, Christendom likes 3, 3, and 13. 3, 3, and 13. 3, 3, and 13. Christendom likes three uh, men and three gifts and 13 days after Jesus born, the wise men visit. That's what Christendom tells us. 3, 3, and 13. I don't believe any of that's true, but nonetheless. Uh, uh, the reality of the gap, of course, demonstrates uh, Matthew's uh, spirit-driven pen is focused in direct response with emphasis upon Old Testament messianic prophecies fulfilled in Jesus called the Christ. Uh, uh, we might uh, vary a little bit in regards to coming weeks in this regard, but I'm telling you that the very best way to approach Matthew is with a constant referencing of the Old Testament scriptures. That the best way to approach Matthew is to follow dramatically his spirit-driven line of prophetic statements that relatively bring us back and back and back to the prophetic nature of the Old Testament record concerning Jesus as Messiah. Now, let's direct our attention to the wise men this morning uh, from the east, of whom we know not their names, we know not their number, and we know not their exact uh, national homeland. The three ends, uh, names, number, and nationality. We don't know their names, we don't know their number, and we don't know their national homeland. Corrupt Christianity, however, has given us three names, Casper, now, when I hear that name, based upon the 1950s and the 60s, I think about Casper the Friendly Ghost, as if there was one. But nonetheless, uh, uh, one of the wise men was supposedly named Casper. Uh, one of the wise men was uh, supposedly named Bossar. And, uh, and uh, third wise man was named uh, uh, Melchior. Uh, those are the three names. Now, the hymnus uh, gives to us, of course, three kings of which to sing. Uh, when in fact we uh, know that there are likely more than three, and the Bible doesn't call them kings at all. In fact, if anything, the way that they respond in this moment proves they were not kings, they were not kings, they were not kings. But nonetheless, a lot of Christendom hype pushes us all things Christmas, all things Easter, all things cross, all things gospel to the realm of Satan's deception and not to the truth of the Bible. Hence, we live in an age where we possess the truth of the gospel without the meaning of the gospel, even in evangelical churches like ours. Uh, the reality, Christendom hype surrounding these wise men reached something of its highest pitch in the 12th century when a bishop, a pastor, boasted to have the three skulls of the wise men in his church in an attempt to boost attendance. Did you hear me? In the 12th century, 
there was a pastor who said, I have the three bleached skulls of the wise men. Come to church and see them. Come to church and see them. And man, did they have a crowd. Christians will come out for a show. Christians will come out for a show. They'll come out for a show. A lot of things that just aren't new. But here's a novel idea. How about we stick to the Bible? How about that? How about we just stick to the Bible? By surveying the plain statements of the Scripture in the light of world history, we can say a number of definitive things, although we cannot say the number exactly. We cannot say their names exactly. We cannot say their nationality exactly. Uh, but we can say a number of things exactly by simply following the record of the scriptures. Here's number one. The wise men of Matthew chapter 2 were men of wisdom, both worldly and godly. The men of Matthew chapter 2 were men of wisdom, both worldly and godly. The class of men serving the rulers of Babylon were kept in order, and many of them transferred to Persia, Medo-Persia. And many of them transferred to the rulership of Greece. And many of them transferred to the rulership of Rome. Over many, many years, here's a class of men who are known for their wisdom and known as wise among secular rulers, Babylon, Persia, Greece, to Rome. And those men were known to have drawn upon various sources of knowledge. And so to approach the aspect of the wise men with an open Bible and the clear statements of recorded history in our hands, there are some things that we can say about these wise men and say it for sure. First of all, we can say uh, four things about the wise men. First thing is that they were star watchers. Number one, these wise men were star watchers. They were all astronomers, and some of them were astrologers. Astronomers and astrologers. I don't know how long I was old until I, I knew the difference of that. Those are two words that are kind of the same. But astronomers, of course, are scientists that study the heavens. Astrologers are occultists that connect constellations to earthly events. The wise men seeking the born king of the Jews were surely astronomers that had witnessed something unusual in the night sky, and their resources brought to bear the thought that the star that had appeared to them had an unusual sense of meaning. And they connected that meaning to the gleaned emphasis of the Hebrew scriptures of which they had been exposed for generations since Daniel was in charge of all wise men in Babylon 500 years prior. They may have also been astrologers and occultists, although I personally doubt that these men were astrologers, but they were certainly astronomers, and I don't know. There could have been one of their number, or two of their number, or three of their number, 
uh, not knowing the number, that were also of an occultist bent. Don't know, don't know, don't know. One way or another, it appears that these wise men had exposure to the Hebrew messianic prophecies flowing out of the Jewish Torah. Where do you go in the Torah to find messianic truth relative to this moment in time? Well, uh, I would go to Genesis 49 and the prophecy of Jacob concerning a star to rise and a scepter to rule out from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49. But then I would also have to add to that as we move away from the Torah or the writings of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Genesis, I'd have to add to that uh, the uh, very unusual prophecy uh, that was uh, given uh, by God uh, to a very uh, falsified prophet named Balaam uh, who set for specific expectation of Messiah in the terms of a star and a scepter. And so let's just take a peek of that this morning before we go on. Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. And I'm interested in verse 17 and the first phrase of 18. Numbers chapter 24, 17 and 18. Now you remember that Balaam was the guy that was schooled by an ass. Uh, Balaam was the guy that was schooled by an, a donkey. Uh, God allowed a donkey to represent the truth so that Balaam would be corrected. Balaam is not to be commended as uh, one of God's prophets. But nonetheless, God did reveal to him and through him uh, something profound building upon uh, the prophecy that God gave to Jacob just before Jacob died concerning the aspect of Judah and uh, the star and scepter that would uh, rise and fall in regards to the aspect of that uh, Jewish tribe, Judah. Here, Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not now. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth, and Edom shall be a possession. I'm going to stop right there at 18a for our purposes this morning, though the prophecy of Balaam goes on from there. I'm interested in the reference there to Edom, verse 18. But verse 17, Balaam said, I can foresee by way of prophetic vision something of him. Who? Well, we would identify this upon uh, uh, detailed study of Messiah. Uh, Balaam says, I can see the Jewish Messiah, but I can't see him now. I can see something of Jew, uh, the uh, Jewish Messiah, uh, but he's not nigh, not nine time. I'm not seeing something that's going to happen today, tomorrow, the next couple of years. I'm seeing something that is in the distant future of human history. And, uh, and then he tells us what he's seen. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Seth, and Edom shall be a possession. That is the prophecy of Numbers 24 that depicts the idea of the promised one of Israel 
under the banner or the terms of star and scepter. Now, when the wise men, who are students of the stars, see an unusuality in the night sky, it evokes in them memory of something that they heard in regards to the Hebrew prophecies going back hundreds of years prior, and they think, what's that star thing? What's that scepter thing that was all about, that we heard about uh, from uh, the Hebrew scriptures? And they begin to study that, and they begin to understand, as it were, that there is not a star in the night sky that is promised uh, in Hebrew uh, scripture, but there is a star as to an individual. There is a ruler as to a scepter that is going to come forth from the land of Israel exactly where that star in the night sky appears to be leading us. And so we would say those men put two and two together. And they didn't make six. They put two and two together and made four, and they made their way towards the aspect of the direction in which the star was leading them with the idea that that star in the night sky had something to do with the rising star out of Jacob, that it had something to do with the scepter of rule promised in ancient Hebrew prophecy. And so they set forth. How many? Don't know. By the way, the early number as quoted by a number of uh, early church fathers, and it was a guess on their part as well, 12. So I guess you're safe to basically think of any number you want because the Bible doesn't tell us, and we don't know how many. But uh, pretty confident it wasn't three. Of course, why three? Well, three gifts is why we have three men, but the Bible doesn't say that either. So star, not in the night sky, but star, rising up out of Jacob, the prophecy, the prophecy of a scepter, a rule that is going to take place over the Jewish people. Now, what, to what extent did those uh, Babylonian wise men have all the details of that, uh, as uh, you and I have a further sense of detailing based upon the New Testament revelation? Well, I would suggest not at all. And yet they, uh, and yet they take off on a trip to go visit the newborn king of the Jews. And they come into town saying, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Have you seen him? Who? The king of the Jews. Who? The newborn king of the Jews. Who? The new king. Can, and can you imagine, I don't know their names, but can you imagine Casper saying to Melikor, what is the deal? We come to Alto and nobody at the church knows anything about Christ. We come to the very place, it's the capital city of the Jews. Where would you go to meet the President of the United States? Well, how about Washington, D.C.? Now, I know some of you people are thinking Delaware, but that's not what I'm thinking. The reality is, is that there is a natural place where you would go if there was a new-born king of the Jews. Jerusalem would be your place of origin, uh, orientation, and that's exactly where those men went to find the newfound king of the Jews. And so the second thing that I would say concerning their knowledge bank is in that area, these wise men had additional insight to Messianic prophecy coming out of the period in which Daniel was over that class of men. 
Daniel not only had the ancient prophecies of Moses, Genesis 49, Numbers 24, Daniel had the further kingly prophecies and promises of God to David, 2 Samuel 7, and one of Daniel's contemporaries was Micah, and Daniel probably knew that Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, as well as did Micah, whose record of prophecy we have in our hands and is quoted by Matthew in chapter 2. Phenomenal sense of knowledge that was brought their way through what we would call a godly channel established going way, 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 way back in Daniel. Now, am I saying that all the wise men of Persia, all the wise men of Greece, and all the wise men of, of Rome were of a godly variety. Absolutely not. They were electric. They, uh, they tried to uh, take uh, whatever they could glean from all knowledgeable sources, regardless of what we would say as to the legitimacy of those knowledgeable sources. And indeed, many of those that were dubbed with the name wise men were sorcerers or witches, or magicians in the, in the true sense of that word uh, historically. And I don't mean doing tricks uh, on some TV show. Uh, no, uh, there is a, uh, there is a, uh, a very uh, a sinful and untoward uh, orientation as it relates to the aspect of the wise men in general terms. But what about these wise men? Well, I'm inclined to believe that they're a little bit less influenced by the occultic things and uh, more influenced by some of the sources of which they follow. But obviously, I don't know. One thing that I think is clear in the context of the text is that these guys expect to come to Jerusalem and find a very healthy boy baby with all the trappings of royalty. Where is he? <laughs> He's over there in the palace. Can we see him? You'll have to get permission. And they go into a room with a golden throne and tapestries of, of purple and deep red. And there on an uplifted altar of gold is this beautiful, soft, cottony uh, blanket, and inside is a baby garnished with jewels and precious things from all over the world. This is the newborn king of the Jews. That is what those wise men would have expected. Why? Why? Well, because that's the way it is in the world. That's the way it is in the world. And there's a lot to learn about God just in the fact that the wise men come to the right place where you'd expect to find the king of the Jews and they keep saying, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And again and again and again, the Jewish people and the Jewish leadership including the king of the Jews, Herod. I don't know. What? Who? 
Where? And of course, you know, as we read it again in Matthew this morning, that Herod calls, as it were, uh, the uh, uh, chief priest and the religious leaders. He says, do you guys know anything about where Messiah is supposed to be born? And they say, yep. We've known it all along. Of course, we know it. Of course, we know everything is in the Bible. We know the Bible. We know the Bible. We know the Bible. Think of all the people that know the Bible and will end up in hell. You could be one of them. Sorry. You could be. The devil is a Bible scholar. The devil was a great theologian. The Bible knows the truth. But the truth has had no effect upon securing the devil. And you and I in this generation are on a desperate trek, especially here in America, of overexposure and underdevelopment concerning all things God. It's great to know the scriptures. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know the scriptures, but you don't know the power of God. Better to be a little Bible dumb and to know the power of God than to be Bible smart and not know God's power. Just saying. Just saying. So the men come, and they come asking for directions. Some lady in the church would want me to say, wise men ask directions. <laughs> the verb tense again indicates that all around Jerusalem they're asking that, and they are quite shocked to find that the general Jewish populace neither knew who was born nor where. Wise men sought directions from the people in the place identified in the world for a king. And nobody knew. But the wise men are to be commended for the fact that they weren't just led by the night sky star, and they weren't just led by the aspect of ancient Hebrew prophecies that were long rehearsed in days gone by in some, of their, in some of their collected knowledge, but they also came to the place with good questions, seeking from appropriate sources, or at least what you'd consider to be appropriate sources, something of direction. And then, of course, we would have to say of these particular wise men, something that is not true of the vast majority of wise men historically in Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and we might add, the United States of America. And that is that these particular wise men were informed directly by God. Verse 12 tells us, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed unto their own country another way. The revelatory dream at the end bids them leave without going back to Herod, and it raises at least the possibility that their quest may well have been launched by a revelatory communication from heaven. Not told that. That's a possibility. I do say this. Why in the world, why in the world would the star 
that you and I clearly identified as being miraculous and from the Lord. Why does the star lead them to Jerusalem? Well, the reason to Jerusalem, because that's what men would expect to be led when you're going to see the king of the Jews. And yet when the star leads them to Jerusalem, then what happens? The star disappears. And so then these men are left to the aspect of the streets and to the authorities to say, where is he? Where is the born king of the Jews? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And then the men meet with Herod. Herod consults his Bible scholars. They tell him the place. Herod then sends the men. You see that at verse 8. And he, Herod, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. Uh, Herod then sends them, and I take note the fact that the word send there is the missionary word. It's not the, lo- the lesser word, which simply means to loose, like one would loose a donkey uh, from a rope at a pole. Uh, but this is the word pempo, which means to send or to commission or to make you an official entourage uh, of investigation for this particular purpose. Herod wanted to authorize, as it were, uh, the mission of the uh, wise men in seeking Christ. Of course, his purpose in authorizing them. And if Herod held a press conference, and of course he didn't because there was no CNN back in that day, but if he held a press conference, he would, ha- he would say this, we have, a, we have assigned a commission, a task force, they're going to investigate. They're going to do an investigation, and they're going to bring all the details to light, and as soon as all the details are brought to light, then we will tell the people what's going to happen, and then, of course, we, if there is indeed found the true king of the Jews, we will join the world in worshiping the born king of the Jews. That's all we have for now. We'll be back at 6 o'clock tomorrow if there's any new details. That'd be it. And, of course, you know and I know that Herod has no intention of worshiping the born king of the Jews at all. Let me plant one more word in your mind before I leave this first section. I'm only dealing with my first point, by the way. Did you bring a lunch? <laughs> no, you didn't. I know that. But this is a message that's heavy on one, brief on two and three. But nonetheless, this is still one. This is number four of one. But nonetheless, informed directly of God, verse 12, And it may well be that this entire matter was launched by revelatory communication. Well, let me get to the second thing that I want to say this morning and have you note it. The wise men in Matthew chapter 2 were men of genuine worship. Now, as I get into genuine worship, let me be clear. Did the wise men, 3, 6, 9, 12, 18, 24, 36, 42, how many? I don't know. Uh, Did the wise men, uh, did they have a clear understanding that the child born in Bethlehem was God in human flesh? I, I doubt that. I sincerely doubt that. But nonetheless, as verse 11 tells us, uh, they come into the house They see the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I like the commentary of Spurgeon in this regard. Spurgeon comments that these fellows were not content to just see the star in the sky, but wanted to see the kid who was king. 
I would update that. I would update Spurgeon's comments by saying they didn't want to just hear about God on some screen over the internet, but they wanted to attend the place where God's people were meeting. You have to forgive me for Spurgeon's update. But there is wisdom that leads them to worship the Lord Jesus Christ correctly. I've been reading Luther, as in Martin Luther, the reformer, over the last number of days in preparation for this section of Matthew, and I, I love the reading. He's, he's very curt. He's very, not rotabush, he's very curt, C-U-R-T. Uh, he's very uh, brief. He's very abrupt. He's very in your face. He just, he just spits it out. I, I like that. And, uh, and Luther is like that. And, and Luther makes a big deal about the, the exercise of faith it took. Listen to this. It's not my idea. This is Luther's. But, but uh, he, Luther talks about the exercise of faith it would take between these guys. Let's go back to the names Casper, Bothstar, and Melikor. It'd, it'd take a lot of faith. And a guy, if there was a guy named Casper or Melikor, it would take a lot of faith in a guy like that to say, okay, we came to the capital, he's not here. We look for gold, it's not there. We look for all these things, and uh, it's not here. We're being sent to a little dinky town in the middle of nowhere, five miles south. Should we go? Melikor says, I think this whole trip has been a waste. I think we've exhausted our energies. The camels need water, and there's nothing for the sh- there's nothing for the show. And Casper may have said, "Oh, I know. I, I think there's something there. Let's let's keep going." And then when they get to Bethlehem, and they come to this house, they look at the house, and they say, "Does this look like the house of a king to you?" No. Does it look like a house of a king to you? No. Should we even go in? But then they come into the house. They see the child. What kind of a child did they see? A child with a halo over his head. And as we sing at Christmas time, no crying he makes. Wouldn't some of our mothers love that? A baby that never cried. Wasn't true of their babies, and it wasn't true of Jesus either. What kind of a baby did they see? May I suggest? A baby. A regular, chunky cutie, messy at the one end, baby. What does it take to bow down to that and worship? It takes what? It takes faith, said Luther. Faith in what? I would ask. Luther would say, faith in the scriptures. To bow down and worship the born king of the Jews. All of the human senses told the wise men what they were doing in that house was stupid. And yet the God of heaven and earth confirmed in their souls that what they were doing was very right. 
Verse 11 again, and when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child, Mary's mother, they fell down and worshiped him, and they, when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were not only marked by worship, they were marked by correct worship. Again, verse 11 tells us they came into the house, they entered the place of worship, they saw the Lord Jesus, they fell down in humble subjection to the Christ, even though a little baby, they gave appropriate gifts, and they went home happy. So here it is again, come, see, fall down, give, go home happy. Here it is again, come, see, fall down, give, go home happy. What is a church service? May I suggest? Come, see, fall down, give, go home happy. This is what gathering is all about. Come, see, fall down, give, go home happy. But that would be your choice. It's your choice to either exercise the faith that you see in the wise men and do what they did and go home happy or go home still thinking about politics or go home still thinking about some sports team or go home still thinking about yourself like you usually do. How about this? How about this? How about this for a church? Come, see, fall down, give. Go home happy. I'll tell you, I think that would be the best church in America. Number three, the wise men of Matthew 2 were rightly warned of God so as to avoid unnecessary trouble. Rightly warned of God so as to avoid unnecessary trouble. Likewise, the Lord's Apostle Peter says to us, be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Herod wanted to devour the Christ and the wise men that worshipped him. The devil would devour us who would honor Christ. You can avoid unnecessary trouble by following the revelation of God. Be sober, be vigilant. Be sober, sound-minded, vigilant, watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, was a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Well, the message titled that you see and see and see and see and see and see is nonetheless true, and I guess I'll end with it. Wise men still seek him. Father, help us today to appropriate these words to our own souls, especially in light of the Lord's table and the hour to come. Help us to be a responsive people to your honor and glory. We ask in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.